Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. There are groups of Jewish people that wear a thing we call a prayer shawl. They call it a tallit. And the tallit has been worn by Jewish people, men, for centuries. Jesus would have worn one every day. In fact, when the lady with the issue of blood says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, she was talking about the tail end, what were called the wings of the tallit. She said, if I can just touch that, I know I'll be healed. Well, they've been worn for a long time. There is a, a sect of Jewish people, Hasidic Jews. Those are the guys with the long beards and the side curls and the flat-topped hats. And what they do with their talent, their prayer shawl, is kind of unique. They will take it when they're praying, and they will pull it up over their face so that they're enclosed, and it's private. And underneath that prayer shawl, for them, it's just me and God. That's the way they get alone with God. It's a little bit different, a little bit strange to our way of thinking, but that's the way they get alone with God. They eliminate all distractions and get alone with God. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about prayer, different kinds of prayer. Next week, we're going to have a guest, and Peter Minamingi is going to talk about prayer. Some of you will remember Peter. He is the pastor from Tanzania, Africa. When he was with us a while back, he talked to us about how he has had to face demonic forces. He talked about these witch doctors who could levitate up high into the trees and how they would do things to, to, to try and stop the gospel going forth and how the Lord would sometimes strike them with great sickness even as they were going out to do great harm and cast curses on him and some of his people. Well, Peter's going to be with us next week. You do not want to miss what he's going to talk about because in setting up next week, I've been talking to Peter and I've asked him, would you please talk to us about prayer? Because over these weeks, you and I will be talking about prayer. And so he'll be talking to us about the incredible power of prayer, what prayer has done and prayer alone that nothing else has been able to do where he lives. And so we'll be talking about this for a long time for the next few weeks We'll be talking about some of the ways that Jesus prayed. In fact, I've entitled the series Praying with Jesus and Dr. Luke because we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke the things that he notices from the life of prayer that Jesus lived. There's some, some private things that Jesus did in prayer, some things that are very easily overlooked, things that we sometimes miss in the life of Jesus that had everything to do with the way he prayed. And we're going to be zeroing in on those things. Sometimes it's just part of a phrase or a little bit of a word, an incomplete sentence that tells us a thousand and one things about Jesus' life of prayer that we need to know. That's the case today. Turn to ch chapter 5 of Luke. And in this chapter 5, there is a familiar story. Now, what we know about prayer is that it took something out of Jesus. It took its toll on Jesus. And we're going to see today what he does when prayer 
takes its toll on him and what he does, how his life took toll on him and what he does in prayer to slip away. But pick the story up, verse 12, the fifth chapter. It says, while he, Jesus, was in one of the cities. Now I'm sure that Luke knew which city we're talking about here. He knew which city this took place in. But he chooses to say a certain city or one of the cities. That's because he's going to emphasize something here. The emphasis is going to be on the people involved, not the place involved. So it's good enough just to say a certain city. Behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, full of leprosy. You do know that Luke was a doctor. He was a practicing physician. He was a part of the Apostle Paul's entourage because Paul's health was never good. It was always fragile. And so he had a physician that traveled with him, Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke is the writer of this gospel. And he puts on his doctor hat often when he talks about healings and he gets very technical and he gets in the weeds. And here he uses his diagnostic skills. And his assessment of this case is, what he knows about it, that the man didn't just have leprosy, the man was covered with leprosy. He was full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Clean is another doctor word, and it demonstrates, it shows the unsanitary nature of this awful disease that this man had. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand, and he did the unthinkable. He touched him. He touched the leper. You were not supposed to touch the lepers because they're unsanitary. They're unclean. And that uncleanliness may jump into your body or the body of somebody else that you touch after the fact. In fact, the law, the law was very clear in forbidding any kind of contact with these people. But as Jesus reaches out his hand and he does the unthinkable, the unlawful, and he touches that flesh that's decaying, he's saying there's something greater than law. There's something even greater than God's great law. And that something that's greater than God's great law is the law of love. Not God's law, but the law of love. Not man's law, but the law of love. And that pity takes precedence over some kind of ceremonial law. So he reaches out and he touches him and he says, I am willing. I am. If you're willing, I am willing. I will do it. And he's hearkening back to the days when creation took place. We're told that everything that we can see and sense and know, everything we can weigh and measure and investigate in this physical universe, it came into being when God said it came into being. And God said. It was by divine fiat. It happened because God said it will happen. And it happens just the way God says. Let there be light. Let there be water. And God said, and this is another of those divine fiats, another God said, he says by his word, I am willing, I say, be cleansed. And immediately 
the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest. Here's more ceremonial law. And make an offering for your cleansing. In other words, take your clean self and go to the priest and show him that you've been cleansed. Not only because that's what the law requires, but that's the way I want to be glorified. I want it to be verified what I've done by an expert beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's the way, not by words. Do I want to be glorified but by what people can see? And I would suggest to you that the same thing constitutes our greatest witness as a, as a disciple of Christ. Not what we say. We can talk. Talk is cheap. I've heard Jesus talk all my life. But it's not what we say, it's what we do, you see. Demonstrate it. And that's why he invites this man. Now you go to the priest and you make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That's the kind of testimony Jesus wants. Indeed, not in words. But the news about him, the man wouldn't keep his mouth shut. I'm not even sure if he went to the priest. But the news about him was spreading. When, when, when Mark tells this story, he says that the leper's story that he tells and retells and that he told and retold, it makes it impossible for Jesus to be in the cities anymore. He can't be in the population centers anymore for fear that now he will be charged with some kind of a high crime or misdemeanor. Practicing medicine without a license, breaking the law, or, or unlawful assembly, or something. They will accuse him of sedition over something or other. So this man's disobedience here, it ruins what Jesus had in mind. But the news about him was spreading even further in large crowds now. Mega crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So the guy kind of ruined it for Jesus. You know, verse 15 and verse 16, which we've not yet read, are strangely related verses, really. Because together they present to us a very strange contradiction. And they show us something that we might not expect to see. You see... The thousands probably now are gathering around Jesus because of what this man has said, because of what happened to him and his inability to do what Jesus said, and he's blabbed it all over, and now thousands of people are coming to Jesus, and they're gathering to hear, and they're gathering to be healed. But what do you suppose would follow then? Now that thousands are coming, that's advertising that you can't pay for. I could promise you that any church in the nation, if it had thousands of people coming, it would not do what Jesus just does next. Thousands are gathering to be healed and to beg favors from him. But what do you suppose would follow? That he would stay and he would heal them. And that the crowds would continue to grow and the word would continue to go out. And as long as people came, he would keep healing. That's what we would suppose would happen, but that is exactly what he does not do. Look at verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. That's what he did. It's probably not what we would do, but that's what he did. 
And he did it often. Slip away to pray. Get alone to pray. Sometimes early in the morning, sometimes late in the evening. Sometimes he would spend whole nights. And in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to be challenging you to one day spend a whole night in prayer. He did it. He did it often. The book of Ephesians talks about and encourages us to pray with all kinds of prayer. That's what it says. Pray with all kinds of prayer. Because there are all kinds of prayer. Worship is prayer. Adoration is prayer. Thanksgiving is another kind of prayer. Waiting is prayer. Solitude is prayer. Reading the Word can be prayer. There are all different kinds of ways to pray. We can ask for things. We can thank Him for things. There are all different kinds of ways to pray. And the Ephesian letter says, pray with all kinds of prayer. But the kind of prayer that Jesus is modeling for us here is what I would call alone prayer. Getting completely alone. Remember the Hasidic people pulling the prayer shawl over their head to get alone? It's that kind of prayer. Where you get alone, it's just Jesus and you and nobody else. And in this little story here, and the way Jesus handles the disappointment, he's showing us the value of alone prayer. And there's some things about alone prayer that I think we need to know. One is that alone prayer covers disappointments. It covers any disappointment, all disappointments. You know, when you, when you look at this verse 16, it's kind of crashing in mid-thought, mid-sentence, because it begins with the word but, which means however, even though, that being the case, however... It's not a good way to start a sentence because it's crashing in in mid-thought. So what's it crashing in about? What, what's happened that it now says, but Jesus did something different? Well, verse 15, it's the crowds and the demands. They had swelled because somebody did not do what he asked them to do. And now he's presented with a very difficult situation and the news has spread like an infection, and they're coming out of the woodwork for whatever it is he can give them and do for them, and his plan wasn't followed the way he wanted it followed, and it didn't turn out the way he wished. The crowds grew, and that's not what he wanted at this point, but he had a plan. But, verse 16 says, he didn't crash he didn't go into despair. He didn't swell up with disappointment. He, he, he wasn't overwhelmed by all of this. He didn't go into a fetal position because things didn't turn out the way he asked. No, that's not what happened. He had a plan in place. Alone prayer covered the disappointment. Alone prayer, it took care of the disappointments. Yeah, things turned away he did not want them to, hadn't counted on. And that happens to us a lot too, doesn't it? We can get a call, we can get a message, we can hear some news, we can be disappointed. It didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. Now I've got a mess on my hands, and this is not what I was bargaining for. This is not what I wanted to get into. Yes, things can turn out a way we don't want them to. That's what happened to him. Things had turned away that he didn't want them to turn. 
wasn't the way he wanted. But did it really matter? Not really. It didn't really matter so much. Not when he could turn and get alone with his father. It didn't matter that it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. The reversal didn't matter because what only matters is I can still get alone with my father. See? Let me suggest that what Jesus did here, he was able to pivot and do so quickly. It was not second nature, it was first nature. When I have a disappointment, I pivot and get alone with the Father. That's what I do. Let me suggest that he was able to do that in this important case because that is his default position. In fact, we're told that. That he withdrew frequently to alone prayer. He did that a lot. I guess he must have been disappointed a lot. That he withdrew frequently, and alone prayer was his default. But alone prayer will cover your disappointments, is the point. They'll cover your disappointments too. So frequently, frequently get alone with God. Just you and him. But it should be for the right reasons, you see. It says that Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness, my Bible says. Some Bibles say he, he slipped away to the desert. When you see desert there, don't think sand dunes and Sahara. That's not what it means. It means deserted places. It means he would slip away to some place where he could be completely cut off, where there would be no chance of interruptions, he looked for those places where he could be completely alone, just him and the Father. And when we get alone, very alone, there should be no phone, no texting, no screens. We're cut off almost. But why? Why, why did he go to the desert places, the deserted places? Well, there are different ideas about that. One is that the crowd was just too much, that the numbers were too much. There was too much noise. There was too much chaos. He could not be heard. There was too much excitement, and their motives weren't always the best. All they really wanted was gimme, gimme, gimme. They were interested in what he could do for him, but not interested in them, and they only wanted their immediate needs met. But once they were satisfied, he knew that they would have no need of him. Well, you know that that still happens today. People will come to Christ in a crisis, and once he delivers them or once he answers, once the healing takes place or the baby comes or once they're out of the jam or they've got enough cash in the bank again, once they're feeling good, fair-weather friends. So he's familiar with that mode of operation. It happened then, it happens today. But some people say, why did he withdraw? Why did he go to the deserted places? Well, it was because there was just too much. It was too much. There are other people that say maybe he needed to get away to recharge his spiritual batteries. Maybe that's what was happening. 
Maybe, maybe he had to, to get alone so that he could be strengthened again. Because after all, in order to give out, we know that you have to take in. And so maybe that's what's happening. Maybe. I'm not subtle enough to know if one of those or both of those are true, but I do think this. I think there's another and maybe a better explanation for why he took the steps, literally, to be totally alone with the Father. And this one, I think, is a little hard for us. Because we are so focused on the practical. What good will it do? Will it work? That's all I'm concerned with. Will it do the job? We're so focused on the practical side of things. And we've got to get alone. Okay, I get that. But the practical reason for it, because in order to do all of the things I need to do, in order to be a blessing, in order to get strength and peace and, 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 and to center myself and reorient myself and recharge myself, I need to get alone. It's a practical reason. But you know why I think Jesus really did it? It wasn't for practical reasons. But maybe he's saying that the greatest value in being alone with God has no value that we can measure. I heard somebody say one time, people that are closest to Christ have learned how to waste time with him. Just that idea of wasting time grits on us, doesn't it? You got too much to do to waste time. But maybe the real value in getting alone with God has a value that we don't have any way to measure. Maybe it means something to him that we can't calculate. It's an old song that says, Jesus speaking in the song lyrics, I miss my time with you. Maybe he likes it a lot. And how will I ever know how to measure that? Let me tell you something that I found. I'm having these experiences the last year or so, a couple of years, of, of reading a passage in the Word or a part of a passage or a word in the Word that I've read a bunch of times, thought I knew well, had taught it, preached it, talked about it, analyzed it, looked into the original languages, thought I had it, thought I had a handle on it. And I'm coming across them now and finding that I wasn't even close. 2 Peter 1.4 is one of those verses. I know it well. I memorized it a long time ago. And the aged apostle Simon Peter, this is his swan song. He knows he's on his way out. He makes reference to that. I'm not going to be around much longer. And one of the things he says in the first chapter, fourth verse, second letter, he says, everything that has happened, everything that God has done by way of the cross and redemption and resurrection and, and his involvement with you and salvation and, and all of the rest, everything that God has done interacting with you, everything is so that you may become a partaker, listen, of his divine nature. 
You've got to be kidding me. He's done all of this not so he could make us knuckle under and be good boys and girls. Not so that we would be qualified for heaven. But his interest in doing all of this is so that we will become like him. Partakers of his divine nature. It almost sounds like New Age babble, doesn't it? But I read it. Everything has been done so that we can join him, be like him. This is incredible. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that day when, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when the last trumpet sounds, however it sounds, our bodies will be completely changed. And we'll have a body like his body. We'll have a nature like his nature. In another place it says, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's why we want to get alone with him. That's what he's got in mind. There's a great poet by the name of John Donne, 17th century poet. He lived a long time ago. He lived back in the days when the King James Bible was being put together. He was a great poet, but he was a worldly guy. He was a rounder. He lived the hard life. It was drinking, it was women, it was parties. Don't kid yourself, that stuff went on a long time ago. And he lived it to the full until it just about killed him. And then one day he took up the word. He was an established poet. He was well known for his love poems that frankly border on the nasty. But he was a brilliant poet. But he took up the word and he began to be captivated by this idea that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ can live inside of me. And that when he comes to live inside of me, he brings along Father and Spirit. And that the three-person God lives in my life. It blew his world apart. He gave his life completely to Christ. And he rose in his walk with Christ and became the dean, which means the main preacher of the great St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And his messages from that point on and his poetry is saturated with this idea that he could not get out from under, that God lives in me. Toward the end of his life, he wrote a poem I won't read the whole thing or recite it all to you. But it begins with an invitation to God that I think some would find very hard to extend. He says, batter my heart, thou three-personed God. Batter my heart.
In other words, beat me down. Do whatever you've got to do to me to live in me and have your way with me. (laughs) We need to get alone with that God, amen? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.